I am a new ED and inherited a big budget deficit. <laughs> Congratulations. <Yikes>. Sorry. <laughs> I made up some ground by increasing our end of year by 42% over the previous year. I've been working with a terrific fundraising consultant for many months now, and we are going after grants, individual donors, etc., which I feel really good about. The issue is, is that this will take time, and I'm very worried about cash flow in the meantime. Any suggestions for how to create a financial bridge? I have an engaged board. A boost of fifty to 75000 would do the trick. Well, first of all, kudos to you for um, making up some ground because, yeah, yeah the, it sounds like you're well on the way to getting there. So very cool. Um, so I think this is a really unique opportunity. If you have some funders or longtime supporters who believe in you, and perhaps they even knew about your budget deficit or knew about some of your challenges, it's a great opportunity to share sort of how far you've come and how close you are to getting out of that deficit. So I think it's an opportunity to actually have them kind of be the hero, come in with their their cape and save the day for you. Um, and, and some, if they're a long-term funder, someone you've got a long-term relationship with, occasionally they'll say, yeah, we'll help get you there. Or we'll help get you halfway there. Or yeah, we're willing to sort of, you know, do this. So I think that's one thing um, you can do. I also think uh, sometimes this is a great way for board members to all step in and each give something. I This is super unorthodox and I'd love to know what you think about it, Andy, but I've seen organizations come up and you got to do it the right way, but have actually looked at creating a sort of working with boards on sort of a loan arrangement to cover um, until, you know, to kind of cover things until you get the cash flow up and running. I I can see so there's so many like pitfalls with that. And yet I've seen some organizations do it and do it successfully. What what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I've I've seen that too. Um, The, the tricky piece about that is that you need to make sure that you're, keeping it all sort of because you're, you're immediately entering into a transaction that might be a conflict of interest, right? Because yes. you're, you're loaning money from the board to the organization, which means there's interest involved. Somebody's going to be paid back for it. So it's, it's 100% a conflict of interest transaction, yes. which means you need to go through the entire conflict of interest process, which says, is this, you know, is the interest rate fair? Am right. I getting a deal from the, from the board member just to make sure, you know, it needs to be voted on with that person not in the room. Like you have to do all of that stuff to make sure that you're above board. So yeah. it's possible. It's just like, it's a little bit extra work. I think, I think you're on the right track with a loan though, because yeah. there, there are two ways that most organizations, even for-profit organizations manage that kind of, if you're, if you have 50, need 50 to $75,000 to kind of get you through a period because you have cash flow challenges, you're looking at a line of credit yeah. from a bank. And, and if you've got a long-term relationship or even not even a long-term relationship with a the bank, they're willing to give you a line of credit uh, that, you know, they need to look at a bunch of information and it takes, you can't get it immediately. It's not like, you can't just right. walk in and walk out with a check. Right. Uh, but but they can give you, you know, they can say, you know, if you need between 50 and 75, we can give you a line of credit of up to $100,000 and you borrow against that. You end up paying interest on it and you end up paying it back. But that's a, a lot of organizations have lines of credits with banks. So if they don't, they should. The other piece that you can look at, and you said reaching out to a long-term funding partner, is program-related investments. Yes. So some, they, sometimes they call them PRIs. Mm-hmm. Um, what a program-related investment is, is when a, 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 a funder, a lot of times it's a foundation, uh, will basically give you a loan. And they don't have to give you a loan at a low interest rate. They can give you a loan at whatever the prevailing interest rate is. And, and you, can, you can pay it back to them. And a lot of times they'll either forgive the loan because 
most foundations, you know, they've got that corpus of money and it's invested in stuff anyway. So investing it with you, if they trust you, they can always create a loan. They can get 5% interest and that's probably better that they're making in in other markets too. So it's actually a a smart investment decision for them and they can get you over the hump. And it's kind of a win-win for both parties. Yeah, it's not a hard conversation to, to have. I don't, I don't haven't seen it quite as often as I think I should have. I it agree. feels like it's something that should exist more. Yes. Um, so there may be a roadblock that I'm not aware of. Uh, it could be an interesting question to ask somebody else. Yeah, it's interesting because and I, I'm wondering, I've definitely read about PRIs, but I haven't. Um, I feel like that's happened more on a national level and you hear it more with really significantly large foundations, you know, Gates Foundation or, you know, some of the ones that we all know and have heard of. And I don't I, like I'm curious to know, does is that happening in Nevada? Yeah. The, so when when I was at Three Square, the Hilton Foundation did a, a PRI. They did. OK. Yeah, they gave they did a program related investment for I think it was one of the building. I can't remember. I, this could be completely wrong, but I think it was for one of the building purchases. It was a chunk of okay. money for the building purchase. And there was an interest rate involved and we were paying them and then they forgave it. So it got to the point where we're starting to pay it back. And then they said, OK, you can just keep it. It's oh, a grant. They converted great. it to a grant. So so that was a, I think that's the best kind of PRI Ooh, yes. from a nonprofit perspective. Yes. Um, but that did start as a PRI. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Welcome everybody to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I've got some of the wonderful Stacy Wedding here. I'm hey. Andy Shurek. We're here to answer all of your nonprofit questions. So how this works is you go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage. You go to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits webpage. You call Stacy in the middle of the night. <laughs> no. <laughs> you go to the nonprofit. You go to the Facebook. The Nonprofit Everything has a Facebook thing. Um, you can tweet at us. I don't know how. I love that. that a that Facebook thing. It is. I don't, what's it called? Like a page? I yeah. Guess. Yeah. It's, it's got its, its own page. Nonprofit Everything pictures. page. Yeah. yeah it's a page. Um, so you type in nonprofit everything, and that's actually a good way to find out when new episodes drop. If you haven't subscribed, you can go there, and whenever a new episode drops, it'll show up there. And so, but you, you really should subscribe. You should probably subscribe. Yeah. That's actually the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Um, and then you send us questions, and they can be about anything. So, I mean, probably nonprofit. We did get one really interesting question not that long ago, and we haven't decided whether or not we're going to answer it yet because it has <laughs> nothing to do with nonprofits. Um. <laughs> I actually think we have to just as a scoop. I mean, it was we'll it was a great. We'll see. Tell oh, you we're going to keep you in suspense, you guys. So. Tell you what. Here's what we're going to do. I love this idea. I just I just thought of it. So what we'll do is we will record this question and answer the question, and it will be available for Ann members. So if you're a member of Ann and you listen to the podcast. You can go to your Ann member webpage and you can hear the nonprofit everything. This has nothing to do with nonprofits bonus question. So Stacey and I will record this next and we will put it up there. So if you're a member of Ann, go to your member page and you can find the the bonus question there. So that's a good reason to hear something really stupid. Um, and you can, as a bonus, you'll be an Ann member, Woo-hoo! which means you get all of the awesome benefits which of being an Ann cool. member. Right? Yes. And, and Ann, for those of you who are brand new to the podcast, the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, they're the ones that produce this podcast and make it possible for everybody so that um, so that you can hear this completely free of charge no matter where you are in the world. Thank you, Ann. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Brenda J. Stout CPA, a full-service accounting firm specializing in nonprofit tax compliance and IRS problem resolution. Find out more at brendastoutcpa.com or check the Nonprofit Everything show notes for contact information. Thank you, Brenda J. Stout CPA. Thank you, Brenda. employee who told their direct supervisor that they won't be with our organization much longer. When talking this through with my board chair, he thinks that can be considered a verbal resignation and we can go ahead and let this employee go instead of dragging things out. To make the matter more interesting, we would like to get the employee out sooner rather than later because of some other things we suspect, but just don't have enough evidence to terminate at the moment. What is the legal red tape here? Help! Oh, okay. So for the legal red tape here, we're going to absolutely have to bring in an expert. Yes, we are not attorneys. We are not Even attorneys. Even if we like to pretend that some days, but we're, we're not HR consultants. No, we, <laughs> we are not. Um, we're the we're we'll do the touchy feely stuff and some accounting questions. Yeah. So so here's but here's kind of the the take. Um, I I'm not sure, and this is what we'll need to check is if somebody mentions to their supervisor that I don't think I'm going to be here much longer. I don't, I'm not sure that that can be considered as a resignation um, there. And then, you know, what the HR, you know, whoever our expert's going to be is going to talk about um, like what consists of a policy, you know, that's a right to work state and like you can terminate people for whatever reason and like, what do you need to do to protect yourself? But, but here's, here's kind of what I'm, what I'm wondering about this question is like, what is the, what is the reporting relationship when an employee tells their supervisor something and all of a sudden the board chair has an opinion yes. on whether or not somebody can be can be terminated? Yes. What I was wondering, yeah, I had the same question and I also was reading this thinking, okay, so let's say the person who wrote this is an executive director and, you know, executive directors have the choice to bring in board chairs on topics as they choose, right? That feels like, an area you don't want to get your board chair involved in. But yeah, I just kind of scratched my head thinking, what are what are the layers here within this organization? And was that sort of like any HR issue comes to the board chair? Because that's problematic as well, since that's really an operational issue. Yeah. Uh, so so what I, I mean, what I would recommend is is get some expertise either either on your board as a committee member or somebody that you can you can ask these questions to that you can get a response and then use all of the you know, use all of the information you have to be able to get an accurate response. So if you can't, if, you're, if your organization isn't quite big enough to be able to have like a professional HR person on staff, which is a very large number of nonprofits, talk to somebody who does this kind of thing, put them on retainer or don't even put them on retainer to say, hey, you know, what's it going to cost me if I just call you occasionally and ask you a couple of questions just so that you can get actual professional legal help um, to, to make sure that you're not going to get in trouble for this kind of thing. Because you know, dealing with an EEOC claim or some yes. other kind of employment problem is going to cost you way more money and spend way more of your valuable time on nonsense than you necessarily need to deal with. So making, I mean, you can't prevent it all. No, you can do it. You could do it the perfect way. Everything can be exactly right. And somebody's still going to get their feelings hurt because of the way they were treated. Um, and then you're going to end up having to deal with it. But, but the, you know, make sure that you're, you're protected on the front end. And that's what I would probably counsel is make sure that you're getting the, you know, you're getting all of the legal help and all of the HR help you can get before you get into this situation. I think from a risk management 
um, standpoint, it's a no-brainer. You have to. Like, this is one of the biggest risks nonprofits face all the time, right? Anything to do with human beings and other human beings. Yeah. It's like, that's where you see the most lawsuits. That's where you see so many problems come up. So it is a, I think it's a super smart investment for organizations if they don't have that person on their board or on a committee or HR task force or something. I also think we'll hear from our, you know, we'll hear from our expert, but these feel like two very separate issues to me. So you have one issue, like, and they probably need to be handled separately, right? You have one issue that's this kind of like, hey, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be at this organization, which also, you know, is interesting because that also makes me think, is that employee trying to, is it like, is that like this covert threat? Like, hey, like you better, whatever. Like there's a lot tied up in that statement, which is interesting. Um, but I also think there's a separate issue of, okay, you're suspecting some things from this employee. Those are two different situations and it'll be interesting to hear what the expert says. So welcome back. Uh, today, we're excited to have a guest expert that we've had before, Mary Beth Hartlib. Uh, Mary Beth, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Mary Beth, for those of you that, that um, don't know her, um, she is the principal of PRISM HR Consulting, and she's uh, been doing human resource, working in the human resources field for over 30 years, uh, working for Fortune 500 companies, developing human resources departments for smaller entrepreneurial ventures. Um, and she has a, a massive amount of experience in a whole bunch of different industries, including gaming, restaurant, association management, education, cannabis, telecommunication, retail, broadcasting, manufacturing, engineering, and what's important for us, nonprofits. So thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So here's the here's the question we had, um, and it was super complicated. And we were like, we just need to go immediately to an expert. We didn't even I don't even think we tried to tackle this one. So, <laughs> so we have this was the question: We have an employee who told their direct supervisor that they won't be with our organization much longer. When talking this through with my board chair, he thinks that can be considered a verbal resignation and we can go ahead and let this employee go instead of dragging it out. To make matters more interesting, we'd like to get the employee out sooner rather than later because some other things we suspect, but we don't have enough evidence to terminate at the moment. What is the legal red tape here? Help. <laughs> Help indeed. Help. Wow. Okay. There's, there's a lot of uh, different issues going on there, but... The first thing I, I want to express to your listeners is that there really isn't anything um, that exists along the lines of a verbal resignation. And the reason why is uh, if an employee just kind of makes an off-the-cuff comment like that, um, they could very well retract that statement or deny ever saying it. So, uh, as far as a best practice is concerned, when we are talking about resignations, I highly recommend that you get that in writing, uh, signed by the employee, and also indicating what their last day will be. Um, if they want to give a reason as to why they're resigning, that's fine, but that is not necessary. And the reason why we want to get this in writing, uh, several reasons. One, as I said earlier, we don't want the employee to retract or deny uh, having ever said it. Uh, we also need to have that support if that employee decides that they're going to file for unemployment or possibly allege any other uh, discrimination charge or, or that they were forced to quit or anything along those lines. Those are all actions that can be taken uh, by an employee or a former employee under the law. And so to protect yourself, you want to be very clear that all parties understand that this is a voluntary resignation. 
some of my clients have even, uh, we've put together form letters for this. So literally, if an employee comes to you and says that, you can hand them that form and you can say, uh, please fill in the details and, and we'll accept that as your resignation. You don't even need the employee to you know, compose their own letter um, for this. So that, that would be um, certainly my advice on that. Um, the, the other thing uh, to be aware of is that under uh, Nevada law, and several other states have similar laws as well, um, all wages have to be paid with a voluntary resignation within seven days or the next payroll date, whichever is sooner. And so you want to make sure that, again, you have a very clear understanding between all parties of what that final day is going to be and uh, process payroll accordingly. Um, in addition uh, to that, I, I know that part of this question was, you know, we'd rather have this person come in, you know, leave sooner rather than later. And the suggestion I would have is call a meeting with that employee uh, and have a witness in the room mm -hmm. and, and just talk to them further about, well, you know, you made this passing comment, what, what's going on? Um, when are, when's your last day? Um, and, and get that again in writing from the employee, reach an agreement. And then what you can always do is you can buy out the employee's resignation, depending on whether you have a policy for this or not. Usually uh, companies request a two week notice of resignation, um, but you can buy that out. And what I mean by that is you can pay the employee for that two-week notice period while still retaining this as a voluntary resignation, and you can ask the employee to exit uh, the company immediately. So I hope that helps. Uh, were there any follow-up questions or any other yeah. details that you were uh, interested in, Andy? Definitely, because one of the questions I had was, this organization clearly doesn't have any, any policies in place. Because if they're asking the question and if they're reacting to a board member, so the board chair says, like, maybe you can do this, um, it feels like they need to, like, maybe have some bench strength about, you know, either either somebody that understands the labor law so that they can they can advise their staff properly, or or you know, what do you recommend for somebody who may just like not have any of this knowledge at all to help them sort of bulk up their knowledge there? Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of different you know webinars and things like that. But like I always say to to clients, it's like you know you have your core responsibilities, and and you know we can certainly help with that and and provide that guidance and advice. Um, many times this is just a simple phone call to, to talk the client through uh, this process, provide documentation and make sure that they understand what the laws are surrounding a specific situation. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I recommend, regardless of how small uh, an organization is, is that an employee handbook uh, with clear policies is, is very important because it gives you something to fall back on. The employees acknowledge receipt and understanding of those policies so that if any of this ever comes into question uh, or you ever have a legal challenge on your hands as an employer, uh, having a, a good handbook and having that updated and reviewed at least annually uh, is, is important. Uh, it, it gives you additional uh, strength uh, when you are going to um, have to defend uh, any type of hiring or firing decision. Mm -hmm. 
So, and then the other thing that I think comes, at least I remember coming up very frequently when we, when we'd have this conversation with managers, when they, 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 they feel like they want to terminate somebody, but they don't, they haven't quite gathered enough information to be able to make it just a straight up firing. Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, there's, you know, Nevada, like you always hear things like Nevada's in an at-will state, which means that you don't necessarily have to have, you know, a ton of reasons to fire somebody. But if somebody's underperforming, I mean, there should be this documentation process where you're keeping track of things so that at any given time you have enough information. If somebody's underperforming, you have enough information to either counsel that employee or start the process to, to getting rid of them, right? Right, right. Yeah. So employment at will, um, almost every state in the United States uh, subscribes to that, that common law philosophy and law. But the truth of the matter is because we have so many other laws that have been passed um, really starting in like the 1960s that, that prohibit any form of discrimination uh, against an employee. And most employees um, can fall into one of these protected categories, whether it be age or race, ethnicity, religion. Um, and in addition, uh, there's a relatively new charge, which is called retaliation. Anybody can check that box. You don't need to fall into any kind of a protected class or category. And retaliation has a pretty low bar set in terms of proving that. And something for your listeners to understand, too, is that these, these government agencies exist for a reason. And they're very, they're very much in place and there to provide protection for the employees. And so, unfortunately, as employers, we are often put on the defense um, to, to mitigate, uh, you know, any claims or, or allegations. Um, so, again, you know, going back to the, the handbook policies and things of that sort, you'll, you'll often see that at will is mentioned throughout a handbook and throughout policies. It's important uh, it still it still means something, but it it's not a catch all that is going to protect you from all the other laws that are out there. And again, against discrimination, harassment, um, retaliation, et cetera, that exist um, today. And so, again, it's important to document performance issues. And if you look at it this way, it's in fairness to the employee as well as the employer. Everyone's on the same page. Uh, there are no secrets about performance deficiencies. Expectations are made clear. And the employee really won't have a surprise if you get to the point in the progressive discipline or progressive coaching process uh, that their job is on the line. And, and that means something. Uh, it means something to these government agencies that enforce these anti-discrimination laws. Um, it means something even if you're going to defend an unemployment claim. And many employers I know are like, oh, it's just unemployment. Unemployment's a business expense. Um, you're paying into that. Employees are paying into it. And so if, if there's a legitimate reason to terminate uh, someone's employment, they file for unemployment and you don't have anything in the file, you're probably going to lose that case and that is going to cost you additional money. Right. And it, I mean, from a business perspective, the, the smartest thing to do is to hire good employees uh, and keep them happy and, and not right. <laughs> not ever get into these situations. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. We yeah, would all love that. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because it's hard not to look at it from one side or the other, but you're right. It needs to, you, you need to take the employee into consideration too. And, and you're right. Absolutely. Nobody likes to be surprised with, you know, walking into an office and there's the HR person and the executive director. And Oh, by the way, today's your last 
day. That's right. the worst thing ever. No one should ever be surprised when they're going to get fired. It should be, you should be well aware that, that you haven't met the expectations. And, you know, and if you're, and if you're not doing it that way, if, if the managers aren't doing it that way, you, you, you don't be surprised with the retaliation case. Right. And, and, or, you know, using another reason, you know, um, I, I was discriminated against because of my religious beliefs, not because of my performance deficiencies. And then guess what? You have to prove and support the performance deficiencies. If you don't have anything in the file and you haven't been coaching and counseling this employee along the way, um, you're going to lose because yep. you don't have any evidence or proof. And the other thing they th I think everyone needs to keep in mind is social media. Uh, so you want to diffuse these termination uh, situations as much as possible. And if employee is put on notice, they've been given opportunities to improve. It's still not working out for whatever reason. Um, that really does help diffuse the situation as opposed to an employee, you know, taking this uh, to the media, uh, posting on their social media pages. And I, I, I'm especially concerned about this in a nonprofit setting because this goes to donor relations. Um, it, it's, it's everything that the nonprofit stands for. You have no idea what potential, uh, you know, disgruntled employees could do or post in terms of information or discrediting the nonprofit. And, and so I think it's, it's, it can be a real public relations nightmare. Yeah. And so I think we need to, you know, take that into consideration as well. Like, have we, have we treated this employee fairly? Have we given them every opportunity to improve? I think the best part about when we get to interview experts on certain topics is it always raises additional questions that I want to dig into, but I always feel like we should, we'll let our listeners come up with the questions. So, mm -hmm. so, so just to seed the next question is, and we can get Mary Beth back to answer this one is what happens when former employees start bad mouthing you on, on social media? Is there anything you can do about it? But we won't answer that today because that's a different question. Right. <laughs> the waiting. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Mary Beth, Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight and your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. We'll appreciate talk it. to you later. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our organization is in the midst of a job search for a new executive director. We are a 2 million education focused nonprofit and have a pretty simple, straightforward structure. Our board is debating over whether to title this position executive director versus CEO. What do you think is the most appropriate for our size? So I think not, know, not, not knowing a lot about, about your organization, right, other than what you've shared, I, it sounds to me like um, executive director would probably still be appropriate because we're not talking about a super complex structured organization. I don't know how many staff there are. And I, it sounds like you're, you're not a huge organization um, by any stretch of the imagination, but, but I want to counter that with there's an argument, right? There's a debate in the field about the title CEO um, lends itself more to credibility in the community, to getting, being able to open doors because executive director is very much sort of a nonprofit title and has historically been CEO has more of the business corporate connotation. Nonprofits are moving more toward how do we operate, you know, in business savvy ways and be, you know, we are corporations. Uh, and so how do we for, so so the CEO title lot will argue opens more doors. Um, and so I guess, I guess you have to have that debate. I, I personally think that um, I, I don't get hung up on titles. So to be honest with you, I, I don't really, um, 
I have a hard time with the question because I think you're the lead of the organization, whatever you want to call yourself. Uh, But I do think when there is a complexity level with the organization or it gets to a certain size, it really bears like it lends itself to the CEO title more. And candidly, CEOs expect more like a CEO position in general demands more money than an executive director position when you look at the field and the industry. So you also have to be prepared. Right. And then and then you also have to think about then is there a whole C-suite of people underneath you? Then is it a CFO, a COO, right? A CDO for chief development officers. So so what is that like fallout for the entire organization if you go there at a CEO? So so I don't know if I answered that direct. I mean, I guess my answer would be I think it's fine right now to be an executive to call it executive director. But what are your thoughts? I, I think you said all of the things that I was going to say. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. The, the only thing, the only thing I would add is that that it it's a good thing to sort of save for the salary negotiation is to is to say, like, also we we don't really care what the title is. Like, so you know, do you would you like the title to be CEO? And that could be something that actually, I mean. In general, you're right. The CEO title would probably be, you know, if we were to do a survey, people named CEO get more money than people named executive director on average. I think you're right. That has a lot to do with the size of the organization. But that could be that could you could also go the other way with that, too, is as you're going through your salary negotiation with this person, like just call it the executive director. And then when you get to the point where they're, you know, saying you need a little bit more money, you can sweeten the pot with the well, why don't we call it the CEO instead of the executive director, because that may be more attractive to the candidate. So that's that's the only thing that I would add. But I agree with absolutely everything else you said, especially with like um, the only other piece of it, is you mentioned, like adding other C-level officers. So you have a CFO, a CDO. Um, and and yeah, we'd love to hear from from people that are in this position too. like are as a fundraising professional, are you more likely to uh, take a chief development officer position or are you more likely to take a, you know, whatever the other title would be, right. like director of fundraising yes. or whatever. Yeah. So like which which one of those things is going to be more attractive to you as a candidate? What do you think, Andy? Here's another question sort of that ties into this. If you're a funder or you're a donor and you see an org chart that shows CEO versus executive director, does that does that influence the way you think about the organization at all? It, it depends. I mean, I, the organization can't change its size based on the title of right. the executive, right? So, so a tiny organization where the the person that's in charge of it is the CEO, and there's like no other you staff. Kinda, there's like kind of one a joke. person. Like you kind of want to laugh, right? I mean, yeah. not to be, but yeah, it's it, that that can have the the opposite effect of, and I don't know that like a, a giant organization where the head person is called the executive director. I don't know that that would ever make me think that they were less. It would, it would seem sort of like quaint, like, right. Oh, it's like old school. I yeah. Like it is you know, kind right? of old school. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know that I'm the best person to ask either. Right. I'm not a, well, I had, you know, it's interesting. There's a, there's an organization, uh, a nonprofit that had mentioned, had mentioned a question like this to me recently. And um, they actually did sort of a little bit of informal survey work with some other, with some donors and said, tell me about this org structure. And the donors actually asked questions like, so how large is the organization? And how, and, and the donors said, well, all I keep thinking when I see this is dollar signs for salaries when I see all these C-suite employees. And that was the donors sort of immediate sort of gut check, like, oh, like, and is that organization even complex or large enough to warrant that? So it was, it was fascinating because, um, they're still having that debate as, as that organization. And I think a lot of 
a lot of groups are starting to struggle with this because over the last even 10, 20 years, it's, it's really shifted. I mean, you think about 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, this really wasn't a topic. And now it's topic out there. Like, yeah. Yeah. is it an ED or is it a CEO? Yeah. And, and then you're right. It goes back to sort of like the corporatization of nonprofits is that they, you know, the language has changed. Um, it's, it's, it's becoming more more typical for you to use pretty much all 100 percent you know typical business language on stuff and less nonprofit specific language yeah and to go back to the funder that's concerned that because you have a CEO and a CDO and a CFO that your organization is like profligate you know what's your problem like so right. so you'd rather have underpaid people that don't know what they're exactly. doing or would you rather have good people that oh yeah that's a whole, important whole other debate that you and i get in or not even debate but oh, we get on it's our not a debate we, it's, it's not a debate a, it's, it's just, just a frustral angry yes, reaction it is. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah okay you're right like we'll just call everybody volunteer <laughs> you're the lead volunteer <laughs> You've crossed the finish line. Another episode completed of Nonprofit Everything. And we really appreciate your listenership. And we want to continue to grow listenership. So please, if this is a value to you, we'd ask you to just share this. Tell people they can ask us a question, right? We're here to kind of try to meet the needs as best we can, or at least bring in other experts who can who can answer the questions. So we want to hear from you. And we appreciate you listening. And a huge um, shout out both to... Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits for making this possible. But I also am going to embarrass Andy here for a minute, the fabulous co-host I get to do this with. Um, Andy puts tireless time into actually editing these episodes. So I get, you know, the luxury of just coming in and sitting here and babbling on for an hour or two. And Andy actually does all the editing behind the scenes. So uh, all as a volunteer. So this is volunteer for both of us. And that's why we would love it if you help make our lives and our jobs a little, a little fun with your questions and uh, all those topics on your mind. So thank you for joining us. 